Since you've made it this far, you must be enjoying this book, and that makes me so happy. You deserve to sleep well every night, so be sure to check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed where you'll find exclusive bonus episodes. That way, you'll never run out of stories to put you to sleep. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth, and I'm so glad you chose to be here tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Little Women, but before we do, let's give ourselves a moment to leave the day behind us. Imagine you are in a rowing boat on a glorious, warm summer day. You are drifting easily down a river with grassy banks. You can hear the wildlife lazily going about the day. You lean back with your arms supporting you and stretch out your chest and shoulders, feeling the sunlight warming your skin. Then you take a deep breath in. And when you exhale, you feel all your cares hang in the air. They stay right where they are, like a cloud, while you drift slowly past, leaving them behind you. Last time you were here, the March girls were invited to a party by Laurie. His friends from England were visiting, and he had planned an outing for them all. They met at the Lawrence house, and the girls were introduced to the group. Twin boys, Fred and Frank, one with a crutch, a little girl named Grace, and a young woman about 20 years old named Kate. Mr. Brooke, Laurie's tutor, also accompanied them, along with Sally Gardner and Ned Moffat, home from college. Next, they all rode along the river to Long Meadow where a wonderful scene had been created with tents, food, and croquet. A tense game was had before the group settled down to some lunch. Afterwards, they played some games. Kate suggested something called rigmarole, where each told a bit of story in turn, adding to the previous part as they went along. It was clear by the end who the real storytellers were. Next, Joe, Laurie, Sally, and Ned played truth. While Mr. Brooke admired Meg, Kate sketched, and the younger girls and boys played in the meadow. And that's where we pick back up tonight. The party still sat at Long Meadow. So just close your eyes and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 12 
Camp Lawrence continued. Miss Cave took out her sketch again, and Margaret watched her, while Mr. Brooke lay on the grass with a book which he did not read. How beautifully you do it. I wish I could draw, said Meg, with a mingled admiration and regret in her voice. Why don't you learn? I should think you had taste and talent for it, replied Miss Cave graciously. I haven't time. Your mamma prefers other accomplishments, I fancy. So did mine, but I proved to her that I had a talent by taking a few lessons privately, and then she was quite willing I should go on. Can't you do the same with your governess? I have none, said Meg. I forgot young ladies in America go to school more than with us. Very fine schools they are, too, Papa says. You go to a private one, I suppose. I don't go at all. I am a governess myself. Oh, indeed, said Miss Kate. But she might as well have said, Dear me, how dreadful, for her tone implied it and something in her face made Meg colour and wish she had not been so frank. Mr. Brooke looked up and said quickly, Young ladies in America love independence as much as their ancestors did, and are admired and respected for supporting themselves. Oh, yes, of course. It's very nice and proper in them to do so. We have many most respectable and worthy young women who do the same and are employed by the nobility, because being daughters of gentlemen, they are both well-bred and accomplished, you know, said Miss Kate in a patronizing tone that hurt Meg's pride and made her work seem not only more distasteful but degrading. Did the German song suit Miss March? inquired Mr. Brooke, breaking an awkward pause. Oh, yes, it was very sweet, and I'm much obliged to whoever translated it for me. And Meg's downcast face brightened as she spoke. Don't you read German? asked Miss Kate with a look of surprise. Not very well. My father, who taught me, is away, and I don't get on very fast alone, for I've no one to correct my pronunciation. Try a little now. Here is Schiller's Mary Stewart, and a tutor who loves to teach. And Mr. Brooke laid his book on her lap with an inviting smile. So hard. I'm afraid to try, said Meg, grateful but bashful in the presence of the accomplished young lady beside her. I'll read a bit to encourage you. And Miss Kate read one of the most beautiful passages in a perfectly correct, but perfectly expressionless manner. Mr. Brooke made no comment as she returned the book to Meg, who said innocently, thought it was poetry. Some of it is. Try this passage. 
there was a strange smile about Mr. Brooks' mouth as he opened at poor Mary's lament. Meg obediently followed the long grass blade which her new tutor used to point with, read slowly and timidly, unconsciously making poetry of the hard words by the soft intonation of her musical voice. Down the page went the green guide, and presently, forgetting her listener in the beauty of the sad scene, Meg read as if alone, giving a little touch of tragedy to the words of the unhappy queen. If she had seen the brown eyes then, she would have stopped short, but she never looked up, and the lesson was not spoiled for her. Very well indeed, said Mr. Brooke as she paused, quite ignoring her many mistakes and looking as if he did indeed love to teach. Miss Kate put up her glass and, having taken a survey of the little tableau before her, shut her sketchbook, saying with condescension, You've a nice accent and in time will be a clever reader. I advise you to learn, for German is a valuable accomplishment to teachers. I must look after Grace. She's romping. And Miss Kate strolled away, adding to herself with a shrug. I didn't come to chaperone a governess, though she is young and pretty. What odd people these Yankees are. I'm afraid Laurie will be quite spoiled among them. I forgot that English people rather turn up their noses at governesses and don't treat them as we do, said Meg, looking after the retreating figure with an annoyed expression. Tutors also have a rather hard time of it there, as I know to my sorrow. There's no place like America for us workers, Miss Margaret. And Mr. Brooke looked so contented and cheerful that Meg was ashamed to lament her hard lot. I'm glad I live in it then. I don't like my work, but I get a good deal of satisfaction out of it after all, so I won't complain. I only wished I liked teaching as you do. You think you would if you had Laurie for a pupil? I shall be very sorry to lose him next year, said Mr. Brooke busily punching holes in the turf. Going to college, I suppose? Meg's lips asked the question, but her eyes added, and what becomes of you? Yes, it's high time he went, for he is ready, and as soon as he is off, I shall turn soldier. I am needed. I'm glad of that, said Meg. I should think every young man would want to go. It is hard for the mothers and sisters who stay at home, she added sorrowfully. I have neither, and very few friends to care whether I live or die, said Mr. Brooke rather bitterly as he absently put the dead rose in the hole he had made and covered it up like a little grave. Laurie and his grandfather would care a great deal, 
and we should all be very sorry to have any harm happen to you, said Meg heartily. Thank you, that sounds pleasant, began Mr. Brooke, looking cheerful again. But before he could finish his speech, Ned, mounted on the old horse, came lumbering up to display his equestrian skill before the young ladies, and there was no more quiet that day. Don't you love to ride? asked Grace of Amy as they stood resting after a race around the field with the others, led by Ned. I dote upon it. My sister Meg used to ride when Papa was rich, but we don't keep any horses now, except Ellen Tree, added Amy, laughing. Tell me about Ellen Tree. Is it a donkey? asked Grace curiously. Why, you see, Joe is crazy about horses, and so am I, but we've only got an old side saddle and no horse. Out in our garden is an apple tree that has a nice low branch, so Joe put the saddle on it, fixed some reins to the part that turns up, and we bounce away on Ellen Tree whenever we like. How funny, laughed. Grace. I have a pony at home and ride nearly every day in the park with Fred and Kate. It's very nice, for my friends go too, and the row is full of ladies and gentlemen. Dear, how charming. I hope I shall go abroad some day, but I'd rather go to Rome than the row, said Amy, who had not the remotest idea what the row was, and wouldn't have asked for the world. Frank, sitting just behind the little girls, heard what they were saying and pushed his crutch away from him with an impatient gesture as he watched the active lads going through all sorts of comical gymnastics. Beth, who was collecting the scattered author cards, looked up and said in her shy yet friendly way, I'm afraid you are tired. Can I do anything for you? Talk to me, please. It's dull sitting by myself, answered Frank, who had evidently been used to being made much of at home. If he asked her to deliver a Latin oration, it would not have seemed a more impossible task to bashful bear. But there was no place to run to, no Joe to hide behind now, and the poor boy looked so wistfully at her that she bravely resolved to try. What do you like to talk about? She asked, fumbling over the cards and dropping half as she tried to tie them up. Well, I like to hear about cricket and boating and hunting, said Frank, who had not yet learned to suit his amusements to his strength. Oh, my heart, what shall I do? I don't know anything about them, thought Beth, and forgetting the boy's misfortune in her flurry, she said, hoping to make him talk 
I never saw any hunting, but I suppose you know all about it. I did once, but I can never hunt again, for I got hurt leaping a confounded five-barred gate. So there are no more horses and hounds for me, said Frank with a sigh that made Beth hate herself for her innocent blunder. Your deer are much prettier than our ugly buffaloes, she said, turning to the prairies for help and feeling glad that she had read one of the boys' books in which Joe delighted. Buffaloes proved soothing and satisfactory, and in her eagerness to amuse another, Beth forgot herself and was quite unconscious of her sister's surprise and delight at the unusual spectacle of Beth talking away to one of the dreadful boys against whom she had begged protection. Bless her heart, she pities him, so she is good to him, said Joe, beaming at her from the croquet ground. I always said she was a little saint, added Meg, as if there could be no further doubt of it. I haven't heard Frank laugh so much for ever so long, said Grace to Amy as they sat discussing dolls and making tea sets out of acorn cups. My sister Beth is a very fastidious girl when she likes to be, said Amy, well pleased at Beth's success. Amy meant fascinating, but as Grace didn't know the exact meaning of either word, fastidious sounded well and made a good impression. An impromptu circus, fox and geese, and an amicable game of croquet finished the afternoon. At sunset, the tent was struck, hampers packed, wickets pulled up, boats loaded, and the whole party floated down the river, singing at the tops of their voices. Ned, getting sentimental, warbled a serenade with the pensive refrain, Alone, alone, ah, woe, alone. And at the lines, We each are young, we each have a heart, Oh, why should we stand thus coldly apart? He looked at Meg with such a lackadaisical expression that she laughed outright and spoiled his song. How can you be so cruel to me? He whispered under cover of a lively chorus. You've kept close to that staunched up English woman all day and now you snub me. I didn't mean to, but you look so funny I really couldn't help it, replied Meg, passing over the first part of his reproach, for it was quite true that she had shunned him, remembering the Moffat party and the talk after it. Ned was offended and turned to Sally for consolation, saying to her rather pettishly, There isn't a bit of flirt in that girl, is there? Not a particle, but she's a dear, returned Sally, defending her friend 
even while confessing her shortcomings. She's not a stricken deer anyway, said Ned, trying to be witty and succeeding as well as very young gentlemen usually do. On the lawn where it had gathered, the little party separated with cordial goodnights and goodbyes, for the Vaughns were going to Canada. As the four sisters went home through the garden, Miss Kate looked after them, saying, without the patronizing tone in her voice, In spite of their demonstrative manners, American girls are very nice when one knows them. I quite agree with you, said Mr. Brooke. Chapter 13 Castles in the Air Lori lay luxuriously swinging to and fro in his hammock one warm September afternoon, wondering what his neighbors were about, but too lazy to go and find out. He was in one of his moods, for the day had been both unprofitable and unsatisfactory, and he was wishing he could live it over again. The hot weather made him indolent, and he had shirked his duties, tried Mr. Brooks' patience to the utmost, displeased his grandfather by practicing half the afternoon, frightened the maidservants half out of their wits by mischievously hinting that one of his dogs was going mad, and, after high words with the stableman about some fancied neglect of his horse, he had flung himself into his hammock to fume over the stupidity of the world in general, till the peace of the lovely day quieted him in spite of himself. Staring up into the green gloom of the horse chestnut trees above him, he dreamed dreams of all sorts, was just imagining himself tossing on the ocean in a voyage round the world when the sound of voices brought him ashore in a flash. Peeping through the meshes of the hammock, he saw the marches coming out as if bound on some expedition. What in the world are those girls about now? Thought Laurie, opening his sleepy eyes to take a good look, for there was something rather peculiar in the appearance of his neighbors. Each wore a large, flapping hat, a brown linen pouch slung over one shoulder, and carried a long staff. Meg had a cushion, Joe a book, Beth a basket, and Amy a portfolio. All walked quietly through the garden, out at the little back gate, and began to climb the hill that lay between the house and the river. Well, that's cool, said Laurie to himself have a picnic and never ask me. I can't be going in the boat if they haven't got the key. Perhaps they forgot it. I'll take it to them and see what's going on. 
Though possessed of half a dozen hats, it took him some time to find one. Then there was a hunt for the key, which was at last discovered in his pocket, so that the girls were quite out of sight when he leaped the fence and ran after them. Taking the shortest way to the boathouse, he waited for them to appear, but no one came, and he went up the hill to take an observation. A grove of pines covered one part of it, and from the heart of his green spot came a clearer sound than the soft sigh of the pines or the drowsy chirp of the crickets. Here's a landscape, thought Laurie, peeping through the bushes and looking wide awake and good-natured already. It was a rather pretty little picture, for the sisters sat together in the shady nook with sun and shadow flickering over them, the aromatic wind lifting their hair and cooling their hot cheeks and all the little wood people going on with their affairs as if these were no strangers but old friends. Meg sat upon her cushion, sewing daintily with her white hands and looking as fresh and sweet as a rose in her pink dress among the green. Beth was sorting the cones that lay thick under the hemlock nearby, for she made pretty things with them. Amy was sketching a group of ferns, and Joe was knitting as she read aloud. A shadow passed over the boy's face as he watched them, feeling that he ought to go away because uninvited, yet lingering because home seemed very lonely and this quiet party in the woods most attractive to his restless spirit. He stood so still that a squirrel, busy with its harvesting, ran down a pine close beside him, saw him suddenly and skipped back, scolding so shrilly that Beth looked up, espied the wistful face behind the birches, and beckoned with a reassuring smile. May I come in, please, or shall I be a bother? He asked, advancing slowly. Meg lifted her eyebrows, but Joe scowled at her defiantly and said at once, Of course you may. We should have asked you before, only we thought you wouldn't care for such a girl's game as this. I always like your games, but if Meg doesn't want me, I'll go away. I've no objection if you do something. It's against the rules to be idle here, replied Meg, gravely but graciously. Much obliged. I'll do anything if you'll let me stop a bit, for it's as dull as the desert of Sahara down there. Shall I sew? Read? Cone, draw, or do all at once. Bring on your bears, I'm ready. And Laurie sat down with a submissive expression, delightful to behold. 
Finish this story while I set my heel, said Joe, holding him the book. Yes, was the meek answer as he began, doing his best to prove his gratitude for the favor of admission into the Busy Bee Society. The story was not a long one, and when it was finished, he ventured to ask a few questions as a reward of merit. Please, ma'am, could I inquire if this highly instructive and charming institution is a new one? Would you tell him? Asked Meg of her sisters. He'll laugh, said Amy warningly. Who cares? Said Joe. I guess he'll like it, added Bear. Of course, I shall give you my word I won't laugh. Tell away, Joe, and don't be afraid. The idea of being afraid of you. <sighs> well, you see, we used to play Pilgrim's Progress, and we've been going on with it in earnest all winter and summer. Yes, I know, said Laurie nodding wisely. Who told you? demanded Joe. Spirits. No, I did. I wanted to amuse him one night while you were all away, and he was rather dismal. He did like it, so don't scold, Joe, said Beth meekly. You can't keep a secret. Never mind. Saves me trouble now. Go on, please said Laurie as Joe became absorbed in her work, looking a trifle displeased. Oh, she didn't tell you about this new plan of ours. Well, we have tried not to waste our holiday, but each has had a task and worked at it with a will. The vacation is nearly over, the stints are all done, and we are ever so glad that we didn't dawdle. Yes, I should think so and Laurie thought regretfully of his own idle days. Mother likes to have us out of doors as much as possible, so we bring our work here and have nice times. For the fun of it, we bring our things in these bags, wear the old hats, use poles to climb the hill, and play pilgrims, as we used to do years ago. We call this hill the Delectable Mountain, for we can look far away and see the country where we hope to live sometime. Joe pointed, and Laurie sat up to examine, for through an opening in the wood, one could look across the wide blue river, the meadows on the other side, far over the outskirts of the great city, to the green hills that rose to meet the sky. The sun was low, and the heavens glowed with the splendor of an autumn sunset. Gold and purple clouds lay on the hilltops, and rising high into the ruddy light were silvery white peaks that shone like the airy spires of some celestial city. How beautiful that is said Laurie softly, for he was quick to see and feel beauty of any kind. It is often so, and we like to watch it, 
for it's never the same, but always splendid, replied Amy, wishing she could paint it. Joe talks about the country where we hope to live sometime. The real country, she means, with pigs and chickens and haymaking. It would be nice, but I wish the beautiful country up there was real and we could ever go to it, said Beth musingly. There is a lovelier country even than that where we shall go by and by when we are good enough, answered Meg with her sweetest voice. Seems so long to wait, so hard to do. I want to fly away at once as those swallows fly and go in at that splendid gate. Oh, you'll get there, Beth, sooner or later. No fear of that, said Joe. I'm the one who will have to fight and work and climb and wait, maybe never get in after all. You'll have me for company if that's any comfort. I shall have to do a deal of traveling before I come in sight of your celestial city. If I arrive late, you'll say a good word for me, won't you, Beth? said Laurie. Something in the boy's face troubled his little friend, but she said cheerfully with her quiet eyes on the changing clouds, If people really want to go and really try all their lives, I think they will get in, for I don't believe there are any locks on that door or any guards at the gate. I always imagine it is as in the picture where the shining ones stretch their hands to welcome poor Christian as he comes up from the river. Wouldn't it be fun if all the castles in the air which we make could come true and we could live in them, said Joe after a little pause. Oh, I've made such quantities it would be hard to choose which I'd have, said Laurie, lying flat and throwing cones at the squirrel who had betrayed him. You'd have to take your favorite one. What is it? asked Meg. If I tell mine, will you tell yours? Yes, if the girls will too. We will. Now, Laurie. After I'd seen as much of the world as I want to, I'd like to settle in Germany and have just as much music as I choose. I'm to be a famous musician myself, and all creation is to rush to hear me. And I'm never to be bothered about money or business. Just enjoy myself and live for what I like. That's my favorite castle. What's yours, Meg? Margaret seemed to find it a little hard to tell hers and waved a break before her face as if to disperse imaginary gnats while she said slowly, I should like a lovely house full of all sorts of luxurious things, nice food, pretty clothes, handsome furniture, pleasant people, and heaps of money. I am to be mistress of it and manage it as I like, plenty of servants, so I never need work a bit. How I should enjoy it. 
for I wouldn't want to be idle, but do good and make everyone love me dearly. Wouldn't you have a master for your castle in the air? Asked Laurie slyly. I said pleasant people, you know. And Meg carefully tied up her shoe as she spoke so that no one saw her face. Why don't you say you'd have a splendid, wise, good husband and some angelic little children? You know your castle wouldn't be perfect without, said Blunt Joe, who had no tender fancies yet and rather scorned romance except in books. You'd have nothing but horses, inkstands and novels in yours, answered Meg petulantly. Wouldn't I, though? I'd have a stable full of Arabian steeds, rooms piled high with books, and I'd write out of a magic inkstand so that my works should be as famous as Laurie's music. I want to do something splendid before I go into my castle. Something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I don't know what, but I'm on the watch for it and mean to astonish you all someday. I think I shall write books and get rich and famous. That would suit me. So that's my favorite dream. Mine is to stay at home safe with father and mother and help take care of the family, said Beth contentedly. Don't you wish for anything else? asked Laurie. Since I have my little piano, I'm perfectly satisfied. I only wish we may all keep well and be together. Nothing else. I have ever so many wishes but the pet one is to be an artist and go to Rome and do fine pictures and be the best artist in the whole world, was Amy's modest desire. We're an ambitious set, aren't we? Every one of us, but Beth wants to be rich and famous and gorgeous in every respect. I do wonder if any of us will ever get our wishes said Laurie, chewing grass like a meditative calf. I've got the key to my castle in the air. Whether I can unlock the door remains to be seen, observed Joe mysteriously. I've got the key to mine, but I'm not allowed to try it. Hang college, muttered Laurie with an impatient sigh. Here's mine and Amy waved her pencil. I haven't got any, said Meg forlornly. Yes, you have, said Laurie at once. Where? In your face? Nonsense. That's of no use. Wait and see if it doesn't bring you something worth having, replied the boy laughing at the thought of a charming little secret which he fancied he knew. Meg coloured behind the break, but asked no questions and looked across the river with the same expectant expression which Mr. Brooke had worn when he told the story of the night. If we are alive, 
10 years hence, let's meet and see how many of us have got our wishes or how much nearer we are then than now, said Joe, always ready with a plan. Bless me, how old shall I be? 27, exclaimed Meg, who felt grown up already, having just reached 17. You and I will be 26, Teddy, Beth 24, and Amy 22. What a venerable party, said Joe. I hope I shall have done something to be proud of by that time. I'm such a lazy dog. I'm afraid I shall dawdle, Joe. You need a motive, Mother says, and when you get it, she's sure you'll work splendidly. Is she? By Jupiter, I will if I can only get the chance, said Laurie, sitting up with sudden energy. I ought to be satisfied to please Grandfather, and I do try, but it's working against the grain, you see, and comes hard. He wants me to be an India merchant, as he was. I'd rather be shot. I hate tea and silk and spices and everything his old ships bring. Going to college ought to satisfy him. If I give him four years, he ought to let me off from the business. But he's set, and I've got to do just as he did. Unless I break away and please myself, as my father did. If there was anyone else left to stay with the old gentleman, I'd do it tomorrow. Laurie spoke excitedly and looked ready to carry his threat into execution on the slightest provocation, for he was growing up very fast, and in spite of his indolent ways, had a young man's hatred of subjection, a young man's restless longing to try the world for himself. I advise you to sail away in one of your ships and never come home again till you have tried your own way, said Joe, whose imagination was fired by the thought of such a daring exploit and whose sympathy was excited by what she called Teddy's wrongs. That's not right, Joe. You mustn't talk in that way, and Laurie mustn't take your bad advice. You should do just what your grandfather wishes, my dear boy, said Meg in her most maternal tone. Do your best at college, and when he sees that you try to please him, I'm sure he won't be hard on you or unjust to you. As you say, there is no one else to stay with and love him and you'd never forgive yourself if you left him without his permission. Don't be dismal, nor fret, but do your duty, and you'll get your reward, as good Mr. Brooke has, by being respected and loved. What do you know about him? asked Laurie, grateful for the good advice, but objecting to the lecture and glad to turn the conversation from himself after his unusual outbreak. Only what your grandpa told us about him, how he took good care of his own mother till she died, wouldn't go abroad as a tutor to some nice person because he wouldn't leave her, and how he provides now for an old woman 
who nursed his mother and never tells anyone, but is just as generous and patient and good as can be. Uh, so he is, dear old fellow, said Laurie heartily as Meg paused, looking flushed and earnest with her story. It's like Grandpa to find out all about him without letting him know and to tell all his goodness to others so that they might like him. Brooke couldn't understand why your mother was as kind to him, asking him over with me and treating him in her beautiful, friendly way. He thought she was just perfect and talked about it for days and went on about you all in flaming style. If ever do I get my wish, you'll see what I do for Brooke. Begin to do something now by not plaguing his life out, said Meg sharply. How do you know I do, miss? I can always tell by his face when he goes away. If you've been good, he looks satisfied and walks briskly. If you have plagued him, he's sober and walks slowly, as if he wanted to go back and do his work better. Well, I like that. So you keep an account of my good and bad marks in Brooke's face, do you? I see him bow and smile as he passes your window, but I didn't know you'd get up a telegraph. We haven't. Don't be angry and, oh, don't tell him I said anything. It's only to show that I cared how you get on. And what is said here is said in confidence, you know said Meg, much alarmed at the thought of what might follow from her careless speech. I don't tell tales, replied Laurie with his high and mighty air, as Joe called a certain expression which he occasionally wore. Only if Brooke is going to be a thermometer, I must mind to have fair weather for him to report. Please don't be offended, I didn't mean to preach or tell tales or be silly. I only thought Joe was encouraging you in a feeling which you'd be sorry for by and by. You are so kind to us. We feel as if you were our brother. Say just what we think. Forgive me. I meant it kindly. And Meg offered her hand with a gesture both affectionate and timid. Ashamed of his momentary pique, Laurie squeezed the kind little hand and said frankly, I'm the one to be forgiven. I'm cross and have been out of sorts all day. I like to have you tell me my faults and be sisterly, so don't mind if I'm grumpy sometimes. I thank you all the same. Bent on showing that he was not offended, he made himself as agreeable as possible, wound cotton for Meg, recited poetry to please Joe, shook down cones for Beth, and helped Amy with her ferns, proving himself a fit person to belong to the Busy Bee Society. In the midst of an animated discussion on the domestic habits of turtles, one of those amiable creatures having strolled up from the river. The faint sound of a bell warned them that Hannah had put the tea to draw 
and they would just have time to get home to supper. May I come again? asked Laurie. Yes, if you are good and love your book, as the boys in the primer are told to do, said Meg, smiling. I'll try. Then you may come, and I'll teach you to knit. There's a demand for socks just now, added Joe, waving hers like a big blue worsted banner as they parted at the gate. That night, when Beth played to Mr. Lawrence in the twilight, Laurie, standing in the shadow of the curtain, listened to the little David, whose simple music always quieted his moody spirit, and watched the old man, who sat with his grey head on his hand, thinking tender thoughts of the dead child he had loved so much. Remembering the conversation of the afternoon, the boy said to himself, with the resolve to make the sacrifice cheerfully, I'll let my castle go and stay with the dear old gentleman while he needs me, for I am all he has. <laughs>